Hi, I'm Jeff Smelser, and this is Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition, and I am in Exton, Pennsylvania, where we have just a few snowflakes falling. Our snowflake of residence is Chase Byers, and he is in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where the governor is Tom Wolf or somebody like that. And uh, we have uh, Joe Works, who is in Elmira, New York, and there's a little bit more snow there. Good afternoon, guys. No Hello, Mr. Smelser. Directed at him today? I couldn't I, think... I'm I couldn't think of what you call the the old geezers like us. What do you call? Oh, you say boomers. Hey. Yeah, but but you say boomers. what do you what do you always say to us, Chase? Okay, okay. boomer. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. I, I couldn't remember that. That's. Um... I, I just wanted to remind all of our viewers that Jeff is the sophisticated one. Just in case you didn't know that today, I just wanted to remind everybody. All right. Our topic today is, can I be a Christian in a not free society? So we still live in a free country, but it's, it feels a lot less free than it used to. Does it feel that way to you guys? And if it doesn't, if you say it feels just as free as always, say so. I think that the climate, political climate, societal issues cause us to see that things are headed in a less free society, particularly with freedom of speech, not so much from the government vantage point, but from the cancel culture attitude and so forth. Yeah. So, so just yeah. starting just examples, <clears throat> you know, five years ago, or maybe it's been more than that now, I guess it has been, I guess it's been 10 years ago. I could go buy insurance, health insurance. I could buy any time of the year I wanted or, or not. If I liked my insurance, I could keep it. I didn't have to do anything about it at the end of the year. And if I wanted to do something about it, I could do something about it in July and I could just go buy insurance and it cost me somewhere between 350 and $500 a month. And, um, you know, but now the government has imposed a system where, oh, it's $2,000 a month or $2,800 a month, unless you let them subsidize you. And you can't buy any time of year. You have to wait until a certain time and then you have to, you know, the little things like that, but there are more serious things than that. Um, and there are things like you talk about the cancel culture. Uh, think about, um, you know, in hiring or doing business and uh, with the homosexual agenda and transgender and all of that, if you have a contract with the government, you're not free to hire whom you want to hire. Right. Yeah, that, that's, that's a very good point there. Uh, certainly there are more restrictions in, uh, in that respect. Uh, as well as um, the way that the churches are being dealt with in uh, during the, the COVID situation. Um, you can see clearly in New York State, there is, there is some targeting of churches and synagogues and religious institutions for uh, specific laws, like prohibitions against them. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, so- I, I'm sorry, r real quick, you're, you're not, you're, I think you're only streaming to yourself on Facebook. Um, I think you're start all over again. Maybe not. We, we haven't gotten too far in it. I don't know how that keeps changing because I don't do much on Facebook. I don't know why. Let me see here. Okay, Boomer. It's fine. We'll, we'll yeah. It out. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's see here. Um, Jeff Smells is live now. Uh, Move to edit, edit live video, edit audience. It says only me. 
Okay. Now, see if you see it. There we are. Go ahead. Take it off. All right. So I am Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. This is the third time we've started this webcast. And with me is Chase Byers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and Joe Works in Elmira, New York. Hey, good uh, to see you, Jeff. <laughs> so our topic today is, can I be a Christian in a not free society? And we started out, I rambled a little bit about, see, we've, we've started this webcast twice already. This is the third try. Um, so anyway, we started out, we talked about just little things moving in a direction of less freedom. I was mentioning buying health insurance. You know, this time of year where you have to buy health insurance. 10 years ago, I could buy insurance any time of year I wanted to. In July, I could buy insurance. I didn't have to wait to the end of the year. And at the end of the year, I didn't have to buy insurance. I could just keep what I had. I paid $350 to $500 a month and I had full coverage and I had a high deductible, but that's the way insurance works. Now, no, you can't do that. You have to wait to the end of the year. And at the end of the year, you have to buy insurance. And when you buy it, it's gonna cost, well, they're quoting me anywhere from 2000 to $2,800 a month, unless I let the government subsidize me, in which case now the government has that much more control over my life. And, uh, but I'm kind of stuck. So that's kind of a mundane example of less freedom. Uh, but Joe, you were mentioning some more serious and grievous uh, hindrances to our freedom. Yeah, I mean, because of the COVID uh, epidemic, uh, pandemic, whatever word you want to use, uh, you know, churches have fallen under uh, certain restrictions that I think even just a year ago, people would have never dreamt that the government could actually come in and close the doors of a, of a religious institution. Um, but they've not only done that, but they've even specifically in New York State, New York City especially, uh, specifically targeted certain synagogues and churches. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, I, and just living in down, well, we lived in downtown Harrisburg. We, we moved just a little bit out of the city uh, earlier this year. But I think anyone who lives in a you know pretty populous city is going to also just get the feeling that your beliefs are outdated as a Christian and that, uh, you know, you're, you're out of the loop. You're not in the woke generation because right. of what you believe. And there have been plenty of conversations I've had with different people in the city where it's very clear that I'm in the minority in the population. And so I can recall one time I was writing an article on abortion in a local coffee shop downtown. And uh, as people would walk past my computer, I was getting some pretty dirty looks about like, what, what is this guy researching? And, and um, I think, so my point is though, I think, I think we all kind of feel the tension that's in the nation whenever you are a Christian. And so that makes me think it's moving in a different direction. Yeah. So at least from then, my perspective, that that's true. And then we have laws now such that if you have, have a business and you do business with the government, uh, you're, you, there are laws about whom you hire and whom you can hire, or cannot hire or cannot fire. I guess not whom you cannot hire, but in terms of homosexuals or transgender or something, you can't make any distinctions there. And so we see less and less freedom. And in some cases, these freedom, these, these taking away of our freedoms, um, they really impact our, our choices that we, we want to make because of what God's word teaches. And so the, Christ, the question that we want to tackle today is, can one be a Christian in a not free 
society. And, I, and I'm not saying the United States is not still a free country. It's not as free as it was. Um, but we have to think about that. So where would you start um, with that? If somebody says, well, I, I just don't think you can be a Christian in, in this particular society or that particular society. It seems like the book of Acts would be a pretty good place to start, or maybe even in the Gospels. Uh, yeah, I, you know, first century was not a very free society, was it? No, not at all. And in fact, it's something Jesus warned the people about pretty directly in Matthew, the 10th chapter. I mean, he says things like, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. And beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But the Lord does say, uh, when they hand you over, don't worry about what you are to, um, or how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say, for it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Uh, later at verse 22 of Matthew 10, you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Jesus warned us up front that this was going to be something that happened. And so, yeah. And so in that passage, so in that passage is his solution, then just keep quiet and don't let anybody know what you believe. No, my translation is different there. Yeah. Yeah. So come down to verse 32 and 33. So it says, everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, him, Will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven? But whosoever shall die, deny me before men, him I also I, will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So, in that scenario you're describing there, Chase, the Lord still expected them uh, to be courageous and to um, stand up for what they believed in. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, just a little bit after that, and before verse 32 and verse 24, the disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. Um, and Jesus, even in his crucifixion, even in his death and persecution by the authorities that be, Jesus never quietened down, um, I should say. He, he never denied who he was or what he stood for. And so if he's our master, we need to follow in that example. But, but Chase, if we do that, I mean, there are circumstances where you could be in danger of going to jail. Yeah, and there's even some situations in which you might die for, for your faith, and uh, that is part of the risk of becoming a Christian, and I think because we live in 21st century America, I think there are a lot of folks who sign up to be a Christian without realizing that this is a real possibility of something that can happen, and so I think it's an overlooked part of the gospel to begin with. Um, you know, Paul in the book of Acts talks about uh, when he was, actually Luke is the one who writes the book of Acts, but he talks about when Paul was known as Saul, and he was persecuting believers, and he had official authority from the high priest to go into other countries to seek people if they were of the way, and it describes what he was doing in several passages, and I'm having a mental blank right now. Of course, there's Acts 9 verse 2, where it talks about how he would he, he had letters to take to Damascus where he would go to the synagogues and if he found any that were of the way, the way of Jesus, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. But which is the context that, where it talks about him going into houses and dragging people Acts out? Acts 8, yeah. Acts 8, yeah, verses 1 through 3. Yeah, that's okay. 
um, Saul laid waste the church, entering into every house, and this is in Jerusalem, entering into every house and dragging men and women, committed them to prison. Uh, that, I mean, if you're a Christian in that environment, you might be tempted to say, well, I, I just need to keep my mouth shut. Um, but that wasn't the solution. As a matter of fact, they, they were scattered. They did leave Jerusalem. That's true. Um, but what did they do is they were scattered in verse four. They kept preaching the word. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was non-negotiable. I mean, their location that was up to change and was subject to change, but the preaching the word and being an obedient follower of Jesus, that was non-negotiable. That was going to keep up no matter where they were. I like that. I like that term non-negotiable. That's really what our faith and our service to God needs to be. It needs to be non-negotiable, non-negotiable. And the, the, the priorities, the choices that we make, um, it can't vary with, the changing societal um, philosophies, uh, practices. Uh, you know, think society really has changed. If, if you go back, oh, if you go back 30 years, um, there was hardly anyone advocating for homosexual marriage. Uh, and that may seem strange to, to some younger people today, but just 1990, uh, Republicans, Democrats, everybody, nobody was, I mean, sure, there was some way, way out on the fringe, but nobody thought that was going to happen. Uh, it, but society changed. Well, Christians can't. And so th what that means is Christians are going to end up being at odds with society. But the temptation is to not be at odds with society. And that's, that's kind of the point we want to talk about today. Let's go back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we have examples of characters who definitely were not free, and yet they could serve God. What are some examples that come to mind? I think Joseph is a really good example of that. You know, somebody who, in Genesis 37, his brothers sold him off. He was the favorite of their father. And uh, they eventually, they initially wanted to just have Joseph killed, but they end up selling him to the Midianites, and then the Midianites sell him to Egypt, and he ends up working in the household of Potiphar. What do you call the um, kind of person who gets sold? Slave. Slave. Yeah. So he's not a free man. I mean, by definition, he is not a free man. Um, and his master's wife um, prevails upon him to have relations with her, and this is his master's wife, and he refuses. Now, you could say, well, his master wouldn't have liked that. He, he's a slave. From the worldly point of view, you, you don't have a whole lot of choices to make your own more moral stands, but, but Joseph did. Uh, and then where did he go from there? They went, went to, to prison. prison. So, all right, is it conceivable that we as Christians could go to jail? And if we go to jail, could we serve God in jail? Yeah. I, I, that, 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 that text in Genesis is one of the places that uh, yeah. would certainly show that to be the case. Anybody else? And Joe, you, I was going to say, but Joe, you, you've been to prison, haven't you? I have been to prison. I spent seven yeah. years in prison. Yeah. But that's probably for another topic or another uh, week. <laughs> yeah. I was a volunteer but, there, I should say. 
and uh, yeah but yeah. but my point is there were several men there that were christians and were following the lord and that that is why joe was in prison he was uh doing some prison ministry there but yeah i think that that's really cool that even today there are men who live in prisons and they can be faithful children of god even there but when we come to the new testament we see paul spending time in jail prison we see peter we see silas um so it's not a given that well, I can't go to jail, so uh, I'm going to have to make a compromise here. You, you think of how, really, in some ways, how soft we are and how unprepared we are to accept difficulties in life um, due to our faith and the positions we have to stand for. And it seems like, I don't want to get too far off track of, of your train of thought, Jeff, but it seems like some brethren want to take the approach that the solution to being faithful and avoiding prison or bad consequences would be to make sure that we have a good government that makes good laws that are going to be supportive of Christian principles. And boy, that's wonderful when, when that happens. Sure. Uh, we even see Paul sometimes appealing to government officials to make good, just decisions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they do. Mm -hmm. And Paul is released on occasion or something like that. And other times they don't. And he suffers for years in, uh, uh, in prison. That, that's such an excellent point, Joe. I, I really think you're right. And I, I don't, I wish I could get it in my mind, stuck in my mind, how you just phrased that. But uh, that idea that the solution is to make sure that we have a good government that affords us our freedoms, something to that effect. And, and, and I, I think you're right. If we have some opportunity to influence the sort of government we have, that's great. But that's not the solution. How often in the Bible do we see God's people, let's talk about in the New Testament. How often in the New Testament do we see Christians lobbying for a particular form of government um, that would afford them more freedoms as opposed to less freedoms? The, I mean, the, I think the only place that you really see that would be for Paul wanting to proclaim the gospel. Mm -hmm. I mean, is, are there other passages? What passage do you have in mind there? Um, where he would appeal uh, for release or, uh, oh. you know, uh, think maybe about like Philippians 1 even, um, uh, where through their prayers he would be released. Yeah. So uh, I was even I, I was even thinking of 1 Timothy 2, where he's calling on Timothy and the men. Um, yeah. He says, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to say there's anything wrong with voting or even campaigning, but praying, praying for our leaders is not the same thing as voting for different leaders. Uh, right. I'm not at all saying there's anything wrong for vote with voting for different leaders. That's fine. But, but I, just going back to Joe's point, our objective is to serve God. And our number one means of serving God is not to get the kind of government that will make it easy for us to serve God. 
Uh, we're going to serve God regardless of what kind of government there is. We may pray for something better, but go ahead, Chase. Well, looking at that First Timothy 2 passage, I would just say it is interesting to think through, well, why, why is Paul saying pray for these leaders so that we can lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity? <clears throat> what, what does his want to be able to live this kind of lifestyle have to do with the leaders that be? And so I think there is no doubt whenever the leaders are okay with you being loud about the gospel, it makes your life a whole lot easier as a Christian. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to live in a government that promotes those ideas or, or not even promotes them, but is tolerant of those ideas. Because I do think that's something Paul would have wanted. Sure. I don't and, know. And, and do, I don't, do you all see what I'm saying though? Yeah, I, I, I do. Let, let, me, let me go on with that though. I, I don't disagree with what you're saying, Chase. I do think it's helpful not to stop reading at verse two and recognize, at least in the New King James in verse three, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God and Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. There's one uh, God, a mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself a ransom for all to be testified to them, for which I'm appointed as a preacher and a God and an apostle. It seems like there's a connection both in verse four and in verse seven to the purpose for this praying is because everybody needs to be saved. Uh, I, it seems right. like it's all one, one, one thought there. So right. it's, it's still well, connected still, to evangelism. Sure, absolutely. But my point is, if we live in a society where we get to lead a tranquil and quiet life, it makes the job of evangelism a whole lot easier. So what if I live in a society where I get to lead a quiet and tranquil life? Thanks be to God that that be the case. And yet, as here, the, the emperor at this time is Nero, corrupt man. He's really not praying specifically, get rid of Nero and get somebody else in there. I, I, I'm not saying that there's never a time to do that. There are times when we might pray something like that. But he really seems to be praying, regardless of what the government is, what kind of government is, whether it's a dictatorship, whether it's a communist thing, or whether it's a socialist thing, or whether it's a whatever it might be, that we might lead tranquil and quiet lives, which, which I think partly presumes that God will use the government to keep order. That doesn't necessarily mean I have political freedoms, but God will use the government to keep order. I wish we had a biblical example of somebody in a dangerous situation with the government who did pray things like this. Uh, I just yeah, wish that there guess, was anybody in the, in the scriptures that did that sort of thing. We'll just um, have to wait till we get to heaven and ask God if there was ever an example. Joe, why don't you talk to us about Daniel? <laughs> oh, da Daniel. Yeah, that's right. Daniel. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, just kind of walk through those first six chapters of Daniel, and uh, you see this young man who uh, the uh, Babylon has come has destroyed uh, Jerusalem, uh, dis completely destroyed the temple, wiped out the city, killed a lot of people, taken Daniel and his friends captive, uh, you know, forced them to lead a Babylonian life, give them Babylonian names to Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, try to, you know, they, they, take, they talk about how you can't, you can take the 
boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. And, you know, that sort of thing. They tried to take Judaism out of Daniel. They, they take Daniel out of Jerusalem, but they can't take Judaism. They, they can't take God out of Daniel. And, uh, you know, but it doesn't even end there. Nebuchadnezzar throws Daniel's friends into a fire. Um, uh, you know, he, uh, he shows himself to be extremely proud in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, look at all that I've done uh, before he turns into an animal. Um, just all sorts of things are going on uh, with, uh, with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and then you, you follow on through and, uh, well, I guess right there in Daniel 4, when Daniel is having to interpret that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had about him turning into an animal, Daniel's response is, may that happen to your enemies and not to you. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Da Daniel, it seems as if he really, in spite of all of those things, is seeking the spiritual welfare of this arrogant pagan king. Yeah. So you, you don't, it seems like Daniel would not have had a hard time praying for the king. Uh, it, you know, you think of, um, Oh, man, my mind is just gone. I had a thought. I knew where I was going, and it's gone. As Nebuchadnezzar said, the thing is gone from me. Well, uh, while, while you're trying to uh, recall that, let, let me just make the point. Um, half of the nation for the last four years would have great difficulty praying for our president. It's quite likely for the next four years, the other half of the nation yeah. will have difficulty praying for our president. So, I, and that brings back the passage to mind. I was thinking of is in First Peter chapter two, the end of the chapter there, uh, not the end of the chapter. Um, well, my mind is just not there today. First Peter chapter two, verse seventeen. What happened? Honor all men, old. love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. The king was Nero, and there you have Daniel honoring the king. Um, yeah. But it's also interesting when you look at Daniel. His solution was not to go along to get along. You start out in the book of Daniel, and when he is just a young man, probably a teenager, and he's been carried away from his homeland into this foreign country, and you think the best way to survive is to please your captors, and he's standing there saying, I'm not going to eat this food that you're giving me to make me somebody healthy and desirable in your eyes. Uh, now, he, he says it in a very winsome way, but he's going to stand his ground, um, and then Late in his life, after after decades have gone by, and he's probably in his 80s, and the Persians have taken over, now there is a law passed saying that nobody can pray to anyone other than the king for 30 days. And Daniel, he, he's uncompromising. He's still going to pray to his God, and he ends up thrown in the lion's den for it. So you're right. You see this, this Daniel who is able to live in this society and honor people who were pagans for, for what they deserved honor. And yet he is uncompromising in his priorities and his convictions. Really remarkable. And uh, not only is he uncompromising, mm -hmm. but he also has a tenderness towards those leaders who, who don't seem to deserve it. I mean, you, know, you do see some growth in Nebuchadnezzar over the first four chapters, uh, but he, he still, you know, 
he hasn't become a Jew, it doesn't seem like, in, in that text. Um, he, he has greater respect, maybe, for, for Yahweh. Um, but all the way through, Daniel's tenderness, his willingness to forgive, uh, uh, he just has a Christ-like spirit um, remind you of the way that Jesus dealt with the religious leaders in his day. Um, you know, it, it, it brought him to tears that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. Late, late in Daniel's life, when there is this law, this decree, that nobody can pray to any god other than to the king for 30 days, was that a well-thought-out law? Uh, no, he, the, the king Darius was set up in that, right? He was set up to, he didn't even see the people who set him up to pass that law. They had an agenda. They wanted to get at Daniel. And, and Darius didn't even see it coming. He didn't realize what was up. Um, it was a it was a poorly conceived law. It was a silly law. It was a bad law. Uh, now, Daniel is not going to obey that law, not because it's a bad law or a silly law or ill-conceived law. He's not going to obey that law because it's contrary to his service to the true God. But sometimes there are laws passed, and we perceive them as bad, ill-conceived, foolish. Um, there are times when we're going to have to we're going to have to comply with some bad laws uh, simply because we live in this world and we are supposed to be subordinate to the to the government. But that doesn't mean that we're going to compromise our faith. In fact. What that means is, in those cases, we're going to obey those laws because of our faith. And that's what Romans 13 says. Let's turn over to Romans 13. <clears throat> Romans 13 says in verse uh, 1, let every soul be in subjection to the higher powers. There's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Um, verse 3, rulers are not a terror to the good, uh, to the good work, but to the evil. God uses government to keep order. Uh, would you have no fear of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise from the same, for he's a minister of God to thee for good. In verse 5, wherefore you must needs be in subject, subjection, not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience sake. And he goes ahead and talks about paying tribute to Caesar. So part of my service to God is to obey the laws that, that I can, but the laws that are contrary to the will of God then I'm not going to obey those. What's the passage that we famously quote, or the famous passage we quote that illustrates the fact that there are some laws I don't have to obey? Acts 5, we ought to obey God rather than man. So when it comes down to a law where it's contrary to what God says, then I'm going to obey God, not man. So I'm living in a society, and let's just imagine a society where there are all kinds of hindrances to my freedom. And some of those are obnoxious and I resent them. Uh, however, uh, unless they are contrary to God's law, then I need to obey them. But when they are contrary to God's law, maybe I'm going to go to jail if I violate this law. Well, that's what I'm going to have to be willing to do. Mm -hmm. I also, as we, as we think about the, the nation moving that direction and having to deal with that, it's going to be a hard time. But in Acts 12, there, I think there's a really helpful compare and contrast that happens there. Um, in Acts 12, this is when Herod, uh, the king, lays hands on some who belong to the church in order to mistreat them. 
and he has James, the brother of John, so the sons of Zebedee, put to death with a sword. Mm -hmm. And so when he sees that it pleases the Jews, he proceeds to arrest Peter also. It was during the days of unleavened bread. So James is arrested and killed immediately. Peter is arrested, and it tells us that Peter was kept in the prison, and prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And as the story goes, um, the angel comes and, you know, strikes Peter, wakes him up, tells him to leave, and Peter goes, he knocks on the door, Rhoda, the, the servant girl, doesn't realize, that, um, or realizes that it's Peter, but is so excited, doesn't let him in, and then finally they let him in, and at the end of the chapter, uh, it's actually really cool that the way that it says that the angel of the Lord strikes Peter in Greek, it's the same thing in verse 23, that the angel of the Lord strikes Herod, and he dies. <laughs> But the, the big picture point I want to pull out of that chapter is there were two faithful men of God here who both underwent persecution. God allowed one to die and the other to live. Um, and I don't think there was anything to it other than that's just the way the cookie crumbled. That, that was the way the Lord let it happen. And whenever we are going to have to deal with persecution and things like that, there might be some brethren who die and there might be some who live. And instead of questioning God, we should put our trust in him in those moments. Um, so I just think that's a helpful kind of compare and contrast to see even just out of Acts 12 on this topic. Maybe a slight rabbit trail on that. When we're dealing with the challenges that government is and very likely will continue to pose for Christianity, um, I think we ought to be focused on who the enemy is, and that's Satan. Um, it's not primarily the government. Uh, they may be a tool for Satan, but maybe they're not. Um, but it's certainly not our brethren. And so sometimes we find brethren who disagree about <clears throat> where the First Amendment begins and ends, and where the Second Amendment begins and ends, and uh, you know, what ought to be our response. And we can talk about those things and we ought to, but I think we have to be really careful to remember that brethren are not our enemies. And if we see somebody who is acting in a weak way, then we should probably think about the passages that deal with weak brethren, not think about passages that deal with unruly brethren. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a challenge. Sometimes it's hard when people disagree and they're making different uh, decisions than, than we are. Um, but, but let's make sure that, that we seek love for all brethren during these times of, of change. In, in turning, the, turning attention back to our relationship to government, um, let me run something by you. I, I made the point from Romans 13, we have to obey the laws, but there are times when we can try to stay out of the way of some government enforcement or something. Uh, so after Paul, after Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, is, is baptized, he is preaching in Damascus. And how does that go? He, <laughs> they, they find out about him and they want to uh, do him harm. And so how does he yeah, escape they, Damascus? Is that where they lower him down in a basket out yeah, the city wall and that's he, right. he goes on to Jerusalem? Yeah, you've got a walled city and apparently, if he goes through the gates, he's going to get caught. So they put him in a basket and lower him over the wall so he can escape. And it's interesting, you don't catch this until you get over to 2 Corinthians, 
but who did he escape from? In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32, he refers to this incident and he says, in Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, guarded the city of the, of the Damascenes in order to take me. And through a window was I let down in a basket by the wall and escaped his hands. So this was the governor under the king who was trying to capture Paul and he escaped. So there have been Christians in China, for example, who could not assemble freely, uh, but they would assemble anyway. And they would try to avoid government officials in doing so. And they would go out into the woods and have their assemblies outdoors in the woods. Um, so it's kind of an interesting it's kind of an interesting contrast between on the one hand being somebody who is subordinate to the laws, but on the other hand, recognizing that, you know, I can sometimes avoid some situation where I could be arrested or put in jail. Doesn't mean that I'm gonna compromise my faith. If I, if I get caught and I go to jail, I go to jail. But had you ever thought about that with Saul uh, fleeing the grasp of the governor under the authority of the king? I think you're exactly right. And I, I recall, in fact, Jeff, your dad's book uh, speaks about those situations in China and uh, the phrase, go to the woods. Uh, I'm not going to uh, quote this very well, but uh, the, my best paraphrase would be that uh, the, the, the term, almost a, uh, uh, almost a proverb of going to the woods was that we're going to put our trust in God. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I, I think that's really you know, that's helpful for us to think about. We may face a situation. We don't have to get in the government's face in, in order to, to do this. Uh, we, we ought to serve God. We ought not to flaunt it. We ought not to fear, but we ought not to flaunt either. Yeah. Well, let's turn our attention to Revelation 13 and the mark of the beast, because that is related to what we're talking about. Um, and, you know, people want to talk about the mark of the beast, and they, they're afraid of uh, something that's off in the future, and they're afraid it's a credit cards or a microchip or whatever. Basically, the mark of the beast was going along with the society uh, and the standards of society. In this case, a society in which they were worshiping the emperor. And um, you know, Libby and I were over in Ephesus, which is one of the seven cities where there were the seven churches of Asia mentioned in the book of Revelation. We saw the temple that was built to... Um, um, help me out. I've got no mind today. Artemis? Artemis. Uh, no. Um, starts with a D. Diana? <laughs> Diana? No, 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 no. The emperor. Uh, not last decade. Do Domitian. Domitian. Thank you. <laughs> oh, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. okay. Yeah, there was a temple built to him there. And, and, and in, in this part of the world, there were most there were 37 cities that were temple warden cities for the worship of the emperor and most of them were right here in this little area called asia which is not what we know of as the continent of asia it's just a little province on the western end of turkey and three of the cities that were temple wardens were ephesus smyrna and pergamum and you see these in the seven seven churches and mentioned the book of revelation and in, in that time there was pressure to worship 
the, the emperor as deity. <clears throat> and if you didn't go along with those kinds of things, then the powers that enforce the worship, the priesthood, the cultic priesthood that enforced the worship of the emperor, uh, verse 15, it was given unto him to give breath to it, even to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as should not worship the image of the beast should be killed. The image of the beast is the image of, of, the, of the emperor. And, um, and so then it goes on, it says, he causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free and the bond that there be given them a mark on their right hand or upon their forehead, and that no man should be able to buy or to sell, save he that has the mark, even the name of the beast or the number of his name. And we get caught up, people get caught up in all kinds of speculation, but this is really pretty easy. In the next chapter, God's people have a mark on their foreheads. It's not a literal number or name written on their foreheads, but they are identifiable as God's people. But if you go along with the world, if you do that which is wrong to go along with the world, if you worship the emperor or you worship the homosexual agenda or you worship whatever it is that's contrary to the way of God that society wants you to worship, bow down to it, then you've got the mark of the beast. And we've seen examples in recent years of florists and photographers and bakers who lost their jobs, lost their businesses because they refused to perform their service in connection with a homosexual wedding. And so various government officials and agencies have taken up the cause of the homosexual agenda and seen to it that these people were fined heavily or put out of business. That's, that's really the same thing we're seeing here when we talk about the mark of the beast, it seems to me. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Um, we have to be prepared that we may lose uh, our business or uh, you know, our friends or financial situation, even our houses. CJ sends us a comment. He mentions Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in connection with this point right here, I think that's, that's a good connection. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's attitude, they were the ones in Nebuchadnezzar's time who were told to bow down and worship the image, and they didn't do it. And so they were going to be thrown into a furnace of fire. And their statement was in verse uh, Daniel chapter 3 and verse uh, 17, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he'll deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. They didn't have a guarantee that they would not suffer. They didn't have a guarantee that they would escape that fiery furnace. They knew God could keep them from it. But they also knew, regardless, they were not go going to bow down to this image. In the book of Revelation, the, the people to whom John writes are not given a guarantee that they're not going to suffer. Uh, in, the, in the second chapter, they're told, be faithful even unto death. Uh, there's one man who's already been killed, and he's mentioned by name in the church at Pergamum. Um, so they were going to suffer, but the message that is given to every one of the seven churches is overcome. Overcome. In other words, be faithful unto death. Do what's right regardless, even if you suffer. And ultimately, you'll have a victory. And, and tying that in with Daniel's three friends, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah, uh, their victory was not coming out of the fire unscathed. 
their victory was going into the fire because of their faithfulness. That, I like that. That's a good point. So it's a good, good quote. I, I know who said it. So yeah. <laughs> who said it, Joe? Oh, I don't want to say right now. <laughs> well, Chase, uh, I will attribute that to uh, Joseph Works. Uh, okay. So, all right. <laughs> Uh, if it has to be that good of a quote, I guess we'll give it to him. All right. Okay. Well, we're out of time. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Um, Lord willing, we'll see everyone next week.